You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Thinking is not for truth-finding. Thinking is for bonding. We want to be liked by our peers. And so we say the thing that will make us liked. Hello, welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Box Media Podcast Network. My guest today is David Brooks, New York Times columnist. He's the author of the new book, The Second Mountain which is an interesting book. It's very personal in the way his past books have not been. It's uh, it's a book that emerges out of a spiritual and personal crisis he has and is about trying to understand how to live a better life and how to attach yourself to values and to pursuits that are more external and less internal, more about other people and less about yourself. Uh, there's a lot of interesting pieces to this book and a kind of critique of capitalism that I didn't quite expect in this book. But so this is a conversation that goes in a lot of different places. It's about religion and it's about capitalism and it's about how we make decisions and the meritocracy and political identity. And it's also just about being human um, and the ways in which I can sometimes go awry and the ways in which a lot of grace and a lot of healing can be found in each other. Uh, so I, th- I think this was an interesting one. Um, as always, you can email me uh, with feedback, uh, guest suggestions at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. But here's David Brooks. David Brooks, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you. So let's start with a book seems to have started. To, to the extent you're comfortable, tell me about your 2013. Oh, it was bad. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, my marriage had ended. Uh, my kids had left home. And I'd been part of the conservative movement my whole life, like the Weekly Standard, the Wall Street Journal, National Review, Washington Times. But suddenly, I wasn't the kind of conservative all the other conservatives were. And so my social circles drifted away. So suddenly, I found myself living in an apartment alone. And I had weekday friends, so I could go out to lunch and talk politics with people. But I had no weekend friends, uh, like real friends. And so my weekends were just howling silences. And I would go running. I was in the greatest shape of my life then because I would run like eight miles every weekend day. But I tried to solve the problem by just working a lot. And workaholism is a very effective cure for, or at least diversion from any spiritual or emotional crisis. And so I, I, if you went to my kitchen in my apartment and you pulled open the drawer where there should have been silverware, there was post-it notes. And where there should have been plates, there was just letters and envelopes. Uh, because I wasn't entertaining, I was just working. Uh, and uh, so I was down in the valley. And I learned a bunch of things in the valley. Um, the first thing I learned was freedom sucks. <laughs> that you think freedom is great, and political freedom is great, and economic freedom is pretty good. But social freedom sucks. The person who's not committed and attached to people just is unremembered. You're not 
you're not really attached to anything, so you just drift through life. The second thing I learned was you can be broken or you can be broken open, that you can either take that moment of adversity and get angry and fearful and resentful. There's a great phrase I came across somewhere, pain that is not transformed is transmitted. You lash it out on other people. Or you can get, make yourself vulnerable. Uh, and I tried hard to make myself vulnerable. Uh, and so, you know, this book is a process of, like, what happens after you try to open yourself open. You've always written a lot about community, about personal virtues. Um, I've known you in D.C. for a long time, and you're an incredibly charming guy. You're very funny. How did it happen that you didn't have weekend friends? Well, the, the short answer is I valued time over people. Mm-hmm. that I was like, I really was really into productivity. And I got this way, I think I w- left the journal, went to the Weekly Standard a long time ago. And um, I started life as a freelancer. I was writing for The Atlantic, for Newsweek. I was doing NPR, PBS. So I was doing, I had a lot of employers. And so I just had to churn out a lot. Uh, and so uh, that got me into certain habits where uh, time was like always on my mind. So if I was going to the gas station and I wanted to pump gas, I thought, oh, I got 90 seconds here. I can get two emails done. Like everything <laughs> was like, how, what do I get achieve here? And relationships just take time. You just got to slow down and hang around people. And the second thing I think I was living out of my ego. Uh, I was I actually was listening to your last podcast on uh, work, workism. And I think when people who fall into workism are living out of their ego. And that was true with me. Like you, you better than, how am I doing? How do the world think of me? And the only way to get out of that is it can't make an, a rational decision about that. You have to have an inner transformation and you have to live out of your heart and soul. Your heart learn, yearns for a relationship and your soul learns for surrender to something really good. And so I had to go through this valley to really get a little out of my ego and try to live a little in my heart and soul. And now when you write a book and you're on book tour, you realize the ego ticks over. <laughs> so you gotta, <laughs> you gotta fight it back again. That that work is in podcast is very much in my, in my <laughs> head as I as I ask this and as I was thinking about the book and, and this conversation. But one way of speaking about a work-driven life is it is living out of your ego. Another way, particularly in the kind of work you do, or at least a, a way one could think of the work you do, is that it can be a kind of service. You are writing things that move people. You're writing things, hopefully, that inform people. You uh, Certainly, in this period we're talking about, you had the president read you, members of Congress, members of the Senate read you. And so, I don't know if I want to call it a seduction or I want to call it an argument, but, but one of the arguments here is that putting yourself into your work like that is important. It's your highest purpose. And that there is more value in it than maybe you're giving it credit for. Yeah. So uh, work by itself is not bad. It's how you approach the work. And so there's a difference between a career and a vocation. And a career is something you choose. You have these certain skills and how am I going to maximize my value in the marketplace? Uh, That's a career where you look at your skills. Your vocation is what am I called to do? Uh, What's the problem here is am I called to address? And I like I think in my maybe my last book I read about Viktor Frankl who's famous and he was a psychiatrist in the 30s. He got thrown into a concentration camp and he said, "Hey, this wasn't the life I imagined for myself." And so the the wrong question to ask is what do I want from life? The right question to ask is what is life asking of me? What what problem is here that is my responsibility? And vocation comes out of that sense of summons. Uh, we I don't know if you know Fred Wertheimer uh, but he like I get six emails from that guy every day about the evils of campaign finance laws, and he loves that problem, and his life is oriented around that problem. I sort of admire him, even though he clogs up my email inbox. But um, he's seized by a problem, and so vocation is is really about service, uh, and hopefully the ego disappears a little. It's not about how am I doing, how do I rank on the most viewed, what are my ratings. 
It's, you know, am I serving others and making them who they should be? Do you think that writing for you was more of a vocation and became more of a career? That's a good way to put it. I hadn't thought about that. I, like, I decided, I don't know about you, um, I'd like to hear when you decided to go into this. I decided at 87. Uh, Me too. It was also 87. Oh, age seven. No, 87 <laughs> oh, when I was three. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was not three at 87. Um, but like I was writing, reading Paddington the Bear at age seven. I thought, I want, to, I want to become a writer. I want to do this. And I actually went back in the last year and read that book. And it, it was startled me. A, because it's a sadder book than I remembered it. I don't know if you've ever read it. But it's about a bear from Peru who's in a train station in London, completely abandoned. And then a family takes him in suddenly as a home. And then I remember the intensity uh, I felt while reading that. Um, and really thinking, writing is, that's so great to write a book. That's so amazing. Did you have a moment where you realized this was it? No. Um, I was a blogger for a long time before I ever thought I'd be a writer. Yeah. And a lot of people around me could see I was going to go into journalism long before I did. And I loved writing. And it's the thing – I didn't have a college experience. I just wrote. Like I would wake up at 7 and I wanted to have things up for my readers on the East Coast or 6 rather. And um, I just wrote all the time. And it was the first thing I had felt at home doing. And I think because of that, I didn't even understand it as a career. And also back then, this was 2000 and three, I guess. Um, blogging wasn't a career, right? That was like right. the beginning. Of, like it was a ridiculous idea that that would be a career. And I think a lot about the ways in which I would have written and did write all the time for free. And there was such a like an honesty and a freedom to it. And over time, it becomes more of a career. Um, you are more concerned with what people think of you. And the, the more success I've had, I should say it this way, the more success I've had, the more crust that has attached to that kind of core burning love of just actually trying to write and understand things, the more I'm worried about getting something wrong. I mean, I talk about this on the show a lot, but I think one of the ways in which writing has become a lot worse for me is I'm much more afraid, given my role now, of getting something wrong, which means I can't – I like writing to figure things out. Um, it's actually why I like the podcast because I feel like I'm wrong 30, 40, 60 percent of the time and nobody cares. So I think a lot about the ways in which as more things build onto something that maybe began as a vocation, it becomes a career. As you have more job responsibilities, more meetings, more people you're helping, more people who are helping you. There's just a lot of things that aren't the core burning reason if you're lucky enough to get into something that had that core burning reason. There are a lot of things that aren't that reason anymore, and they become – they begin to take precedence. I mean, to, 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 to one of your points, I do think that things that play on your ego are very powerful. So the most read list at the New York Times, Chartbeat, um, you know, what are your peers saying about your work on Twitter? They – pull on such a primal part of you that they can become a motivating force when that wasn't initially the motivating force. Yeah. Hip-hop artists talk about this all the time. They, they, it's a common th I, I didn't noticed. expect you to go <laughs> directly to that. <laughs> it's a common theme before this became a career, like back when this was pure, we were just doing it for your friends. And the, the, like for me now, I, I really wrote this book. Like at first, my first draft, I was not in it at all. There was no first person. And then my early reader said, you have to put yourself in this book. Huh. And so I – Because this is a very personal book. It, it became very personal just because partially it's about relationship and I, relationship is about vulnerability. And so I had to make myself vulnerable even in moments – like the moments when I was behaving most badly. Um, and so I felt – but it was weird. Once I walked through that door, I just think if you're going to be honest, you got to be honest all the way. Uh, and so that was – um, that was just a step you had to go through. And I found it helpful because I was, it was less about performance. I mean, one of the themes in the book is what do you do with your moment of adversity? And some of it is you throw yourself on friends. 
And uh, I hated throwing myself on friends because I thought it was a burden. Now I have friends throw themselves on me and when they're in moments. We have a, uh, I have a good friend, uh, well, I won't mention his name, but he's going through a hard time. And I'm delighted. It's like a chance to work on our friendship. It's a chance to support him. But then I thought it was a burden. And then the second thing is um, going off in the wilderness and being alone. And when you do that, like the, the virtue of going off in the wilderness and just spending a lot of time alone on inner work is that there's no one to applaud you. And there's no one to say, oh, you're doing well. You're well, that's why you write a book about it. <laughs> you know, right? but, yeah, <laughs> well, that's true. Everything is corrupted. <laughs> but, you know, when, when their ego has no one to perform for, it's crushed. And that's when you're capable of actually becoming a person uh, rather than just a performance. One of the things I resonated to in this book is that I had a really, really hard couple of years, um, a couple of years back. And it had a lot of that, that experience of breaking open. A lot of the things that had worked for me until then began to become the things that were working against me. The things that had kind of built my career and built my social life became the things that were um, eating me apart. But but something you were just saying I was thinking about was that during this period, there's a, you know, I did rely on friends and I was lucky to have really, really good friends, but there's um, one I relied on in particular very, very heavily. And I felt really bad about it. And the only way I could conceptualize that it was okay was that if it had been reversed, it would have been a joy for me to be there for him. Mm -hmm. And like then I could kind of understand that it wasn't, right. you know, that it that there could be some grace in that as opposed to just being needy and just taking somebody's time from a busy life that had its own problems. Yeah. But it's really hard. But, you know, I think friendships deepen a lot in those kinds of exchanges of, you know, who who's in need and who has the strength to help. Yeah, I had a friend named Pete, and we would call at like 1130, we'd call him. The interesting thing, he instructed me on how to listen. He would, I, I would describe my situation, then he would ask six questions, and there would be like a metronome in my head that would say, okay, now he's about to give me advice. But then he'd ask another six questions. And I realized the really good listeners take the time to ask those next six questions. And he was a great comfort to me uh, in those times. Then he'd write me these long emails about what I should, how I should think about this situation. Um, and it was just tremendously valuable to be heard. Um, and you, you do need these bad moments. I think there are two ways to really crush through the ego. One is if you're what's just happened to you, have a child, uh, you, you realize that that stuff, that's a wonderful experience that just makes a lot of the ego desire seem small. And the second is a bad thing. <laughs> um, when you really, whether you have a cancer scare or you lose a child or um, you have some failure and then you think, well, all that stuff I was climbing for, it's not all like that important. But it takes one of these two transformational experiences to to really get around the self of how am I doing, how am I doing, how am I doing. I want to go back to to the decision to put yourself in the book because it, it, it struck on something that I was thinking about reading it. I would say, and I hope you don't take offense at this, that a lot of your early books come from the perspective of somebody looking down. They're a little bit sardonic. They're about, you know, the Bobos in Paradise. It's sort of that you have kind of figured out what these people are. And you're both, I think you write with sympathy, but but you're also writing with a little um, uh, a little bit of a smile. And it's a book in which you're a little bit better than the people you're writing about. You figured out something they haven't or figured out something about them that they haven't. And this book felt like the opposite. It was looking up. It's um, It's a book where maybe there is some pride and having figured a little bit of this out, but really you're writing about people you think are better than you who figured out something that you haven't figured out. Yeah. I, when people go to journalism school and I talk to them, I say, if you're the sort of person who you're at a football game and everyone else is doing the wave and you don't do the wave, 
then you have the right kind of aloof personality type to be a journalist. Because we sit back and we sort of observe others. And for Bobo's in Paradise, I literally, I'd go into a restoration hardware, an anthropology store with my notebook, and I'd just observe people. And then I'd write little notes to myself. And that was aloof and detached. And yeah, I, I never th thought of it that way. It was, it was making fun of the upper middle class uh, people who live in Palo Alto or Bethesda, Maryland or Shaker Heights, Ohio, whatever. But now I'm sort of transfixed by the people who radiate joy. Uh, I'm doing some work with community builders and I got a chance to work with um, Yo-Yo Ma. And he's a guy who's just joyful all the time. And he's a famous guy. But there are people I meet who uh, I work on this project called Weave the Social Fabric Project. And we go around and meet community builders. And I just met a woman, say, from New Orleans who was a healthcare executive. She got she was driving her car one day and she looked and saw two kids, 10 and 11 years old, two boys. They lifted a gun and they shot her uh, in the face. And she remembered, she recovered, and she remembered the look of terror on their faces when they shot her. And they were doing this to as part of their gang initiation ritual. They had to shoot someone. Um, and she said, well, I was a victim, but they were victims too, or they felt they had to do this. So she left her job as a healthcare executive and went to work on gang violence, work with gang members. Good to, Lord. Yeah. And so, and then she op moved into a neighborhood where there are a lot of gangs and she, she had two attractive daughters, as she said. So the guys in the neighborhood started coming over to her house and she let them in. And before long, there were 40 kids every weekend at her house. And she said to them, um, why are you hanging around a middle-aged lady? And they said, you're the only one who opens the door. And so she created a second family for these uh, young people. Uh, and so when you're around people like that, you think, that's amazing. And I've met so many amazing people who just, and they're not only doing good for the world, living out of their heart, but they're just joyful. They just take, they, they're delighted by the things they're grateful for. And so when you're around those people, I try to be around people like that. And there's no way other than to feel inferior to them. You talk a bit in the book about being radicalized over the past couple of years, and, and we've been talking a bit about you here, but a lot of this book is a critique of society. Um, it, it's a book about people who have figured something out, but it's fundamentally a book about what they've rejected as well and what maybe others should reject. So I want to talk about some of those pieces. You write that the meritocracy is the most self-confident moral system in the world today. It's so engrossing and it seems so natural that we're not even aware of how it encourages a certain economic vocabulary about non-economic things. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I think I've come to the belief that we we don't give the meritocracy enough crap, basically. <laughs> um, we, we live in it. And if you're privileged in, in an educated environment, when you're 16, you're, you're thrown into the college admissions process and you're taught that achievement and status are going to be at the center of your life. And so I'm all for achievement. And we both spend a lot of time in the achievement world. But we should acknowledge that if you don't have any other value system outside it, it's deeply corrupting because it's based on lies. And the first lie is that uh, career success will make you feel fulfilled and guarantee you that is not true. The second lie is that um, life is an individual journey, that if you just make yourself um, thinner or be get better at yoga or win a few more victories, I can make myself happy. And the very essence of happiness is that it's not something you can do for yourself. It's about relationship. It's something, something you give to others and they give to you. And then there are a bunch of other lies um, that society is divided between an inner ring, between those who are career successful, who get to go to Davos, and outer rings. That's a very corrosive idea, uh, that you are what you accomplish, that the emotion of the meritocracy is conditional love. And I teach at Yale, uh, and 
a lot of the students there suffer from conditional love. Their parents love them, but they're really anxious for them. And when the kid does something they think will lead to career success, the beam of love is strong. When the kid does something they think will not lead to career success, the beam of love is withdrawn. And those kids are terrified and they take no risks as the fundamental love in their life is at peril at every instance. So I do think we need to have a critique of the meritocracy, which has been sort of floating around, I'd say, in the background, but I'd say is not central to our culture. And it should be central because, you know, it's leading. I had a crisis of disconnection, but America has a crisis of disconnection. We have more people feel lonely than before. Social trust is collapsing. Uh, suicide teenage rates have gone up 70% over the last several years. Suicide rates overall have gone up 30%. 72,000 people die of opiate addiction. This is all disconnection. Uh, and so what what's happening to me was ha is happening across the country, and it's because of bad values and, and a culture built around the wrong things. It, it, it seems a bit like the, the critique here is in the merit part of meritocracy. What, what do we believe to be merit? What is the way you rise up in the meritocracy? I was thinking about uh, a, a stat you have in the book um, when you were talking about the kids at Yale, which is that 80 percent of kids you have, of young people. <laughs> um, boy, I feel, <laughs> boy, I feel old. Uh, is it 80% of, I think it was college students say that their parents care more about what they achieve than about whether they're kind. Yeah. And I've been thinking, I've been reading a lot of parenting books because um, I really want to achieve at being a parent. <laughs> um, but how much there is in those books about raising your kids IQ or about, you know, helping to helping to put them on a path for achievement and how little there actually is about helping them be kind. Yeah. I, one day I want one of my students to come up to me and say, you know, I really wanted to major in accounting, but my parents forced me to major in art history. And that, like that'll never happen. Somehow parents, parents who majored in English want their kids to major in business. Somehow they're more anxious about their kids than they are about themselves. And I don't know what causes that, but we just have fallen into a culture where we we think our pride as parents is going to be measured by what university sticker we put on the back of the car when our kids go there. Our success, if you your kid goes to Stanford, people think, oh, you're a really good parent. Um, and, the, and as a result, college mental health facilities are swamped. And it's super hard to, to, to get off that train. It's very hard to unilaterally disarm. Is, isn't this book just a critique of capitalism? A little, yeah. I thought about that. Like, I went, worked on the Wall Street Journal editorial page for nine years. And I, I, I'm a, really one of my heroes is Alexander Hamilton. So I love capitalism. Like he, his whole political ethos was give people a chance to rise and succeed. Um, but I thought it was that he wasn't going to miss a shot. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I always say that Alexander Hamilton was a, we think of him now as a Latino hip hop star from the Heights. But capitalism needs to be balanced. You've got to have an ethos that really cuts against capitalism. And so it's, it's fine to be a capitalist, but you got to have this second ethos. And for a long time in our country, mainline Protestantism was that basically that ethos. Uh, the Puritans had a sense of two callings. You have that you're rowing for heaven, but you're doing it by achieving something in the world, but you're also serving and surrendering. The capitalism is a, a really a direct logic of life that practice leads to reward, input leads to output. And most religions, whether it's Judaism or Christianity or Islam, have an inverse relationship. You only find yourself when you lose yourself. You only get when you gain. You only become powerful when you admit your weakness. And it's good to have both those systems in your head. But now we've become a much more secular society. So the capitalist ethos is dominant, has no rivals anymore. And the only one now that's dominant on the, our national stage is socialism, which it's bound to make a comeback because 
capitalism is morally unfulfilling. But I, I was reading this book and, and something I was thinking in it was that this book should make you incredibly optimistic about the rise of this new socialist left. I mean, here is uh, an emergent group coming forward and saying that the mores of capitalism are wrong, the ways in which it measures individual achievement are wrong, the idea that our dignity is based on how much we achieve that is valued by the market is wrong. And as much as anything is, it's a tremendous effort to create a countervailing philosophical power. And, and it's also, I think, an effort to force people like you and, and people like me to see that you know, you can talk a lot about markets as a mechanism, but they become a moral philosophy. And I, you know, and I don't think it's a it's an accident that it's this generation, you know, this generation where there aren't these other countervailing powers, there aren't these other kind of religious players and 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 other kind of alternative moral codes pushing against the overwhelming logic of capitalism that comes up and looks around and doesn't see capitalism just as even if it's not a benign, a, a powerful economic force, but sees it as a kind of grotesque philosophy. And so you get all this talk about late capitalism and and a, and a society that feels awry to people. I mean, this this book, in a way I didn't expect, felt to me like a really strong argument for Red Rose Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I would say, I call myself, there was a category years ago called uh, Red Tory, which was left-wing Tory. And I guess left-wing conservative um, was what I would be. I would say I respect, for exactly those reasons, the impulse behind this rise of socialism, AOC and all, and Bernie and all that. I think my critiques would be, one, I've got a book in my backpack sitting behind me called Seeing Like a State. And it's, it was at one of the books that was very important for me because it showed me that governments don't see well and that state action doesn't see well. Uh, that's, say, Burke, who's another hero of mine, his core phrase was epistemological modesty that the world is super complex and be careful about thinking you understand it. And the change you make should be incremental, gradual, and slow. And so when you accrue too much power in state hands, you're likely to get arrogance and a, a state that just doesn't see reality well and makes all sorts of unintended con consequences and mistake. And I think that's a lesson that needs to be relearned. Uh, I was a socialist when I was in my 20s, I get it. But I learned that um, the state is a very clumsy, way to do social change. And the second, the second problem would be socialism. It locates the core problem as, a, as an economic and material problem. And I would say our core problem is a social and emotional problem. Plentiful distrust, lack of connection, uh, lack of the ability to treat us, each other well. And as a result, social isolation, which perversely leads to tribalism. If you leave people naked and alone, they do what their evolutionary roots tell them to do. They revert to tribe. And tribe seems like community, but it's actually the evil twin of community. Communities built on mutual affection, and tribalism is based on mutual hatred. Us, them, scarcity mentality, zero sum, uh, build walls, you know, fight. And so, you know, I, I think if you try to think our problems are strictly material, you're missing the core problem here. So one of the things that I've been uh, reflecting on as we sort of enter into this, this particular ideological collision is that I think part of the critique that I've come to find compelling is that, no, our problems are not strictly material. But in a world where material matters, our philosophy emerges from material. The way we treat each other emerges from the material. And so, you know, if you think about something that's more on the radical side of this, if you imagine a world of, the uni of a universal basic income, a world where you sort of give everybody a certain amount, where you don't have to worry about you'll have enough to sort of eat and you'll have health care and you'll have... And if you imagine that culturally not being a response to automation, but you imagine it being a way of expressing a valuing of people's lives, 
that all of a sudden that might look different, right? I mean, one of the things that seems to me to be hard about the the version vision of the world that you're putting out here is that whatever your moral value set is, if you are a kid or you're a parent and you're sending your kid to school and, you know, their clothes look ratty or um, you're constantly living on the edge of your family falling into financial disaster, that cuts across a lot of this stuff and it cuts into the ways people look at you. I think that there is this belief that maybe you can have capitalism without having capitalism eventually overwhelm our understanding of what people are worth. Maybe you can have capitalism as a way of measuring your economy without it becoming a way of measuring your society. And I've become a little bit more pessimistic that you can. And particularly, I'm not sure that you can create out of cloth the kinds of forces um, that would push back against it. Um, aside from using the state, right? I don't think you can, or I don't think you should want to try to create a new religion. Um, at some point, if you are worried about the way capitalism has made us value each other, then you have to go at the place where we value each other. You can't just sort of work around the edges or the margins. Yeah, well, I've gotten, you know, my life is now built around relationship. Life is a qualitative endeavor, not quantitative. How thick are our relationships? And if you have somebody who's Life is constant economic peril and insecurity. It is super stressful and it's hard to have good relationships. So I would say I, this, to create a more communal culture, um, it has moved me left on economic issues. But I would say it's moved me to, frankly, where the Niskanen Institute is these days, which is if you look at the countries that are cohesive, they have very generous welfare states. But in order to afford those generous welfare states, they have quite liberal economies. And I mean liberal as in the libertarian sense. So they have relatively few regulations. They have very open trade. And so you have big governments supported by really dynamic capitalist economies. And I would say that's where I come politically. Uh, and then I think there should all, be all sorts of investments in human capital and in relationships. Uh, early childhood education, uh, nurse family partnerships, wraparound services around charter schools, anything that will create a neighborhood. But I, I don't want that you can destroy relationships through pure capitalism. You can also destroy community bonds through deference to the state by handing all authority over to the state. So there's an idea that, that you bring up in the book that I'd like to bring in here. Can you talk about a bit about Ruth DeFries, DeFries? Um, ratchet, hatchet, pivot, ratchet concept? Yeah. So I'm, I'm a cultural determinist. <laughs> I think uh, it really culture determines. You can be an economic determinist. You can be a technological determinist. I'm a cultural determinist that the culture and norms really shape the society more than everything else, and they come before everything else. And so she has a theory that we confront a problem, and then we create a culture that will help us address that problem. So, for example, in the 1930s and 40s, we had to face the Depression and World War II. Those were big problems, and they had to be solved by people serving in big organizations, whether it was the Army or General Motors. And so we had a very collective culture. Uh, it was like uh, culture of self-effacement. I'm no better than anybody else. Nobody's better than me. If you lived in Chicago, you didn't say, I live in Chicago. You said, I live at 59th and Pulaski because there was those tight little neighborhoods that really you lived within and, and you didn't go outside them. And then we decided that was too conformist, too stifling, too racist, too sexist, too anti-Semitic. So in the 60s, we sort of chopped that up. And her thesis is you solve a problem and you ratchet upwards and then you get to these moments where the culture no longer works. You have to chop it up. And those chop it up moments can be very bumpy. 1968 was a chop it up moment. We're in the middle of another chop it up moment. 1848, maybe 1905. Um, and But then people are ingenious 
and they figure out a solution and they migrate over and solve it. That's the pivot. And then ratchet, they find a new culture and they solve it. And so in the 60s, they replaced that we're all in this together culture with a more individualistic culture, which you know, where the message was, I'm free to be myself. And there was right-wing individualism, which is about economic freedom. There was left-wing individualism, which is about social freedom. And we've had 60 years of that, and we've taken it too far. And so we have an individualistic culture. We're not very good to each other. We've weakened the bonds between each other. And so now we're chopping it up. And nationalism is a response to that. Populism is a response to that. Socialism is a response to that. And in my view, the, the right culture is a culture of commitment to each other. We're not going to go back to the deference of authority, but it, where we see our lives is making big promises to each other and living up to those promises. So I, I love this idea because I think it gets at something that we do a bad job of in punditry and kind of political conversation, which is you don't need the right answer. You need the right answer for now. Mm. Like whatever <clears throat> answer right. you come to, it's going to have its problems. If you win, you will become the villain. Right, You will become the thing that broke society. And then other people are going to have to come up and say, oh, no, we have to go back in the other direction or in a new direction. And I think about that sometimes with the seeing like a state problem or, 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 or some of these others that I think that we have as a premise in our conversations that we're looking for the answer that doesn't have problems as opposed to we're looking at the corrective that makes sense given what our problems currently are. Yeah. No, I, I firmly believe in that. Um, there was a uh, or a philosopher in the old days, uh, hundreds of years ago, named Vico, and so there's all there's all these cultures in the world. There's like Greek culture, there's Christian culture, there's Jewish culture, there's rationalist culture, and they're not commensurate. You can't get it all. You you're in the middle of one culture, and but you lose something else. So when we went, walked away from Greek and Roman culture, we lost a sense of valor and honor and heroism, and everything comes with its own upsides and downside. And one of my philosophers who's been important in my life was Michael Oakeshott, who's a British philosopher. And he said, governing is just like you're on a ship and at one moment you're tilting too far left and the other moment you're tilting too far right. So you're just trying to shift your weight so you'll be balanced. And that pretty much is what how I think of politics. It's moderation means not that you're in the middle. It means that most debates are debates between two provisional truths and you're trying to write, fit the right balance for the moment. And so, for example, I was I worked at the Wall Street Journal editorial page a long time ago, and I believed in tax cuts. Uh, and I think of the time when we had stagnation in the 70s, there was a good argument for that. We don't have that problem anymore. And so you, now I'm probably for increasing taxes in some ways. But that's not because I've changed just because the, the nation has changed. And you, to be dogmatic that tax cuts are going to be right for the, your entire lifetime seems to me just a weird idea. <laughs> and we wouldn't look at our own, any decision in our own personal life that way, but somehow we look at our political decisions that way. It, Maybe, I don't know what you think about this. Maybe it's just the cost of migrating politically is so high. <laughs> oh, I do. I think that's a big part of it. I mean, I think two things here. One is I think the social cost of migrating is very, very high. But I also think the, the personal cognitive cost of saying that something I believed in might have been wrong is too high. And, and in part, that's because I think it's very hard for people to make the, the, the shift you just made, which is that it might have been right then but wrong now. I think that people get very locked into um, a way of seeing the world. And it seems that if you change that way, it's a betrayal of it or it is somehow an admission of, of wrongness. And by the way, people will make you feel it was wrong, right? It is not a generous culture around changing your mind. I mean, particularly, I think this is a... a 
a grotesque thing we do in politics, which is there is such a culture, particularly in journalism, of, well, in 1973, you said, yeah, right, right. when you were in fifth grade, you <laughs> didn't believe. Um, there's actually a great uh, article in Politico the other day about Elizabeth Warren's past as a Republican and the reasons uh, that she moved over to, to not just the Democratic Party, but to the left of the Democratic Party. And I thought it was such an impressive article about her. And she got this question about it at the CNN town hall the other night. And I was really struck by the way in which she she didn't revel in having made the change, but sort of explained it away. She wasn't political and then she became political. And we don't have a culture where we admire people changing their minds. We we look at that as a sign that you were wrong then or wrong now or you're a hypocrite or you're an opportunist. So I think that's one set of the problems. The other is that I notice and fear in a lot of political commentators that people develop an idea of both what the problems in politics are and what the plausible solutions are in like roughly their 20s. They come to Washington or they come to journalism and they get a sense of how things could work and how they are working. And then they just keep applying that frame over and over and over again. And they're famous enough that at a certain point that in their 40s and 50s they're still getting you know, put on TV and you know they, they, they get good writing assignments and they have a good perch somewhere. But their model is like archaic. And I think there's a way in which just as we always love the music we heard when we were teenagers, <laughs> we a little bit always have the politics of our 20s, right. um, at least unless you're able to put in enormous effort to changing that. And uh, of the many, many traps that my work can fall into, it's the one I fear the most. I, I really fear being this guy who came to Washington, I think had a, a model of a polarized political system that was better than the model of the people who came here in the 90s who you know, thought there were more ways to maybe return to the 80s. Um, but at some point, the underlying structure is going to change again and just being the guy who, you know, and then you, can you even see it? Yeah. I've thought this, I thought this about Paul Ryan, frankly, he came to Washington. He went to work for Empower America with Jack Kemp and he, he grew up in a certain sort of Reagan era conservatism. And when he left Washington, he still had that and he hadn't changed. And I was sort of frustrated with him. Um, and that's in, in part because you get, you get embedded in these models, you get sunk costs, uh, What's it called? Path, path, path dependence. dependence. Yeah, yeah, you get sort of that. And the other thing is that thinking is not for truth finding. Thinking is for bonding. And most of the yes. things we do for that's thinking, a huge point. Yeah, is that we want to be liked by our peers, and so we say the thing that will make us liked. And you keep the same peers. Yeah, right. And it's hard to switch. Um, but I will say, I'm, I sometimes have lunch with a senator, and he hasn't done anything publicly, but he's crashed through. Like he he was conservative, and he used to think, okay, the government is bad. And suddenly he thinks, oh, well, maybe government can be good. And once he crashed through that wall, it's very interesting to watch him. He's he's like liberated. Oh, I can think new things. And, um, is and his, does his name rhyme with Schmike Schmi? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, but that, he would. He might be there too. Um, and but so that's a very liberating moment. But it is politically painful. I will say there are two things I've learned doing this column. I wrote a, I wrote support of the Iraq War, and I wrote some columns. Uh, saying why I was wrong, like, let's think this through. How did I get that wrong? And my friends thought I was betraying them, and my enemies sensed weakness, and they pounced. So I was doubly punished uh, for sort of trying to rethink that. And one thing I've learned in this world, vulnerability is very um, self-punitive. I, yeah. to I told a story in which I looked like a schmuck in a column like a year or two ago. It was about how we in the educated class make erect these social distinctions so the people who are less educated feel out put out they don't feel at home 
And I talked about a time I took a friend of mine who lacked a college education to this fancy sandwich store and how she was sort of upset by it and just wanted to leave because it, it was just all these cultural signifiers. And I was like a schmuck in that story. And people, it like trended on Twitter because somehow announcing vulnerability and announcing your own self-criticism is somehow a chance for everyone to pounce, as we say these days. Yeah, you know, I um, I wrote a column about Paul Ryan a couple of months ago, which is was a kind of similar. I had taken him quite seriously as he came onto the scene uh, and had been in a kind of like running disagreement, but where I took sort of his disagreements with me as like his actual view of the world. And then when he got became speaker and charted a course that I think was in violation of what he said he would do. I believe Paul Ryan was conservative in a way that I didn't agree with. But, you know, I'd taken him as intellectually honest. And I think that in the end, his speakership didn't reflect that. In the end, his speakership was a collapse towards a kind of republicanism that he said he was a repudiation of. And, you know, on the one hand, I think that it's fair for people to criticize me for it. And on the other hand, like, I felt like I got a lot of unfair criticism for it. Um, or And like a lot of people suggesting some things that I didn't do. And, you know, I, I went back and forth on that. On You know... It's frustrating as a writer to get pilloried, but that said, it's also the case that journalism is often a very accountability-free zone. And the idea that we all want to get to have these big jobs and be wrong about big things and then have everybody say like, hey, it's great that you were able to admit that right. you were wrong. I, I kind of – I sympathize with that position too. Um, I sympathize with the position that – I don't know. There's a weird culture of accountability and non-accountability, right? It's like there's a there's a kind of social accountability, a, a, a you get attacked accountability, but very little of a professional accountability. And I think there's some way that I've never figured out that it's not that I don't want people to be able to be wrong. In some ways, I would like people to be able to be less confident on the front end as opposed to just, you know, very declarative and then, you know, changing their minds later. But there's something about the resentment I think it can rightfully engender in the audience as they see people who were wrong continue to rise that I think bears some reflection on our parts. I think everybody's trapped in an equilibrium that isn't very good. Yeah, that's true. I and mean, there should be some social cost to be wrong. Uh, and the, pr frankly, the pain is purifying. <laughs> <laughs> and so it, it humbles you to you get, you know, in my life, I had to be sort of beaten up to be tenderized. And I've gotten much more tender over my writing and, frankly, a little more – and weirdly thick-skinned, but much more emotionally sensitive to the things I get wrong, I'd say. I've gotten much more emotional <laughs> over my lifetime. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor – What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, 
so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. Who are writers, or for that matter, I guess politicians, who you think do a good job of changing of changing their models over time in a way that is intellectually honest, not just tacking to the wind? Yeah. I mean, I like Tyler Cowen, who does the Marginal Revolution blog and does a podcast. I think he, he's sort of a model of intellectual rigor. Um, Andrew Sullivan is a very emotional writer, but I do think he changes. Um, I have a friend, Pete Weiner and Mike Gerson, who are two friends of mine who worked in the Bush White House, are now very anti-Trump. I frankly think some a lot of the more interesting writing is being done by the never Trumpers, though all six of us. Uh, but um, just because suddenly people are philosophically unmoored. What do you make of the fact that the never Trumpers did turn out to be all six of you? <laughs> that did not turn out to be ten percent of the Republican Party. Yeah, or eighty percent. Uh, or eighty. I'm, I'm sort of amazed by it, and it's been very interesting. I go to conferences, and the the thinkers and writers are still never Trumpers. The donor class and the business people who were never Trumpers two years ago are now all pro-Trump. And they've sort of migrated over because it's about left-right and the Democrats are turning socialists, so we're going to stick with this guy. This guy's our guy. And I think the difference partly is, as I said, I'm a moral and cultural determinist. I think if, if you have bad character, you have bad character. If your culture is poisonous, everything else gets undermined. And so, therefore, Trump is never going to work for a lot of us. Um, for the business people, they might be more material determinists that the economy is good. So, and life is about material combat. Um, and so, they don't seem to mind the the moral failings of the president. Um, but I, you know, the other thing is, I have friends who are evangelicals who are never Trumpers, and they thought, oh well, Christians are people who read C.S. Lewis and read Henry Nouwen and um, really believe the, how we treat the least of these is the most important thing. And then suddenly all these evangelicals were voting for Trump and they had to realize, oh, we are not typical. There's a whole mass of people out there who are who are not like us at all. Bring up the evangelical embrace of Trump is, is I think, useful here. One of the ways in which my model has changed over the years and one of the – and I don't like it. I don't like the way in which my thinking on this has changed. But is that I think for most of my life, I took the groups people belong to as – motivated by the group's qualities and beliefs, right? If you were a Democrat, you were probably a Democrat because you lean liberal on issues or a Republican because you leaned right and evangelical because you believed in the Bible, a Jew because you believed in Judaism. Uh, you know, you can go down this list. And whether or not that's true at some level, it now seems to me that groups just have their own dynamics. And you end up in a group for all kinds of reasons. Maybe your parents were in there. Maybe everybody in your community is in there. Maybe you came there for, for ideological reasons. But that once you're in it, that it stops being about what the group professes to believe and just becomes about being in the group yeah. and defending the group and um, having status in the group. And so all these memberships we have that seem like they would drive our behavior, they do. The, the groups are very powerful in driving our behavior, but they drive our behavior as groups, um, not as belief systems to the way we we would think about them. And that means that there's a lot less ability to argue between them, to say, hey, this isn't living up to what you said, or to say, hey, like, you know, I think that's actually a good, uh, helpful explanation of Paul Ryan, who, when I was talking to his friends about, you know, why he did what he did, you know, they said, look, like, he knew a lot of this was wrong, but he felt like his job was to keep the Republican Party intact, right? The group becomes a thing. 
And I, I both think it is a true way the world works and um, and a very distressing one. I mean, what was it? 88% of evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. Um, Bill Bennett, you know, the great moral crusader against uh, Bill Clinton is a, is a huge Trump supporter. There's something incredibly depressing about what our kind of lived behavior reveals about our professed memberships. Yeah. There's something depressing when your friends become talk radio hosts and they become captured by their audience and they have to reflect their audience. Yeah, I, uh, it shocked me when I came to Washington how I underestimated the importance of teamism. Yeah. And like when I uh, came or 20 years ago, the, the if you were in the House or the Senate, you had a policy lunch with your members of your party maybe once every two or three weeks. Now they do it like three times a week. And that's just to control them. And that's just to engender team spirit. The second factor at play, especially with the evangelicals, is the siege mentality. That once you have a sense we're under siege, they're out to get us, then the rally around the authoritarian leader becomes very strong. And a friend of mine put it, evangelical turned from an adjective to a noun. It used to be how you believe something, what you believed, but then it just became an identity group. And I think one of the cancers around is that we turn politics into our identity group. That used to be ethnic or used to be a philosophical position or a psychological position, but now you're a progressive or a conservative. And that's asking of politics more than can it bear. Politics should not be at the center of anybody's identity. It should be an important part of life, but your identity is well, your father, your mom, you're a neighbor, you're a, a Jew, a Christian. These are, these are deeper and more important identities, or you're Polish, you're African American. Um, and they're more life-encompassing than politics. Politics is just a way we ha hammer out some of our differences and do some public policies. I'm a big believer in the Samuel Johnson quote, of all the things that human hearts endure, how few are those that kings can cause and cure? That politics touches us lightly and our relationships touch us deeply. And so we should focus, put our identities in those relationships. So I'm writing a book about this literally exact thing about the ways in which pol political identities have merged and expanded and enlarged. And one of the things I wonder is it, it's become very popular, I think, to say what you're saying. Andrew Sullivan had a piece sort of similar on, on political cults, this idea that to for politics to become an identity is a, a sort of uniquely toxic thing. And then I think about, well, like, go backwards in American life and think about what our identities have done and what they've meant or in other countries' lives. Like Andrew, I think, for instance, is, is much more confident in religious identity. But religious identity has engendered a lot more violence than our current political identities have between the political coalitions. Um, or similarly, racial identity, which is in many ways merging in with political identity. Racial identity did not structure the party divisions in the way it does today in the 50s or you know before that. But uh, um, although I won't point it did, obviously, <laughs> but nevertheless, it created huge levels of violence. It, it was something that was on well, the one hand probably more fundamental, but it led to much more violent and repressive forms of behavior. And so when I'm trying to be optimistic about things, I wonder about the possibility that just as politics is war by their means, the idea that you do politics so you don't do war, um, that having a lot of these conflicts collapse into the political realm allows them to be played out in a space where we have a lot of mechanisms mechanisms for how to have conflict without that conflict going beyond work and go. You have elections as a way of taking the pressure out. You have votes in Congress. You can fight with people on Twitter. And it doesn't feel good for those of us in it, but it has become a, a kind of acting out where a lot of social tensions come together and get channeled and hopefully, at least for now, do not become um, what they might what they might otherwise become, and what they have in this country uh, in the past become. I'm curious if you think that has, if that's yeah, in any way. I'm not sure, I'm totally you. buying what yeah. you're selling. Um, you know, <clears throat> what's the core of life? I've in the book I describe how to make 
and execute on four commitments. And most of us make all or some of these four commitments to a spouse and family, to a community, to a philosophy or faith, and to a, uh, to a vocation. And so I think those four things are the center of your life. And how you execute and choose those commitments depends how fulfilled your life. If you ask politics to fill in for your religion, your faith, your moral philosophy, politics just can't, isn't thick enough to do that. If you ask it to fill in for your community, you're, that's what happens when you become, that's why evangelicals support Trump, because they've asked politics to define what their community is. But can I push you on that? Sure. Isn't the evangelical embrace of Trump, um, not to mention the hundreds of other examples one can give like this, suggest that the religious identity was never what you say it is there? That it was never this totally true moral belief, but in fact that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Jewish, you're, you're part Jewish, um, and you've, I actually want to talk about some of the faith journeys you discuss in the book. But I look around um, at the history of my people and I see a lot of people who were in uh, – who professed beliefs to very beautiful belief systems and uh, committed unspeakable acts of oppression and violence against my um, ancestors. And so I wonder – I wonder if there's not a nostalgic view of what religion meant that was never true for most people in it. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I'm reading a really great book on, 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 on the Irish Troubles now and that was a conflict uh, in many ways between two quite beautiful religions. And so I just, I wonder, I wonder if we are not inventing a religious identity that was never quite as graceful as we, and different as we want it to, as we want to suggest it is. Yeah. Well, first I'd go back to my tribalism versus community belief that you can believe your things in a loving way, in which case me being Jewish or Christian or Muslim doesn't affect you at all. Like, I'm glad you have your identity and I'm glad I have mine. And you're, you just have a, a, an abundance mentality. There's enough for all of us. But in a world where you have a scarcity mentality where there's not enough, then life becomes a zero-sum game and the fact that you have a different faith than mine becomes a big threat. And so that siege mentality transforms a religious belief into a tribal ethos. The second thing we've said is that Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who was chief rabbi of London, wrote a book about this. And his argument was that religions lead to violence not because they're religions but because they're groups. And if you actually are deferential to your religion, every religion I know is quite peaceful. I mean, Judaism is is a, a religion of chesed, it's of loving kindness. Um, Christianity is a religion of grace. Islam is also a religion of peace. And um, the language in every faith that I'm aware of is very much against violence. And it's very much against Phariseeism, about legalism. And the fact that we are violent and we are pharisaical, that we are legalistic, shows how strong this is in our nature and how strong religion has to push against it. And a lot of the time, the religions fail. So I, I think that the problem is we become groupish and clannish, not the actual philosophy of the faith. And in our groupishness, we forget our own teachings. It, you know, it's funny. I didn't, I didn't expect you, and I'm not even really comfortable with it. But, but is that true? So I, we had the Passover Seder a couple days right. ago. And that's a story that's always really bothered me. Um, there are beautiful parts to it, beautiful parts of liberation and and the wages and the, the karma, to mix religious metaphors <laughs> here, that, that comes from oppression. And yet, I remember being taught about it in Hebrew school. I, I attended an Orthodox Hebrew school for a year or two when I was a kid. And they were explaining, because the first time I'd seen it in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the Torah, as opposed to in, um, in just the Haggadah story. And that after each plague, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Right. Not Pharaoh hardens the heart. Right. I was actually right. reading from a God of this year that got that wrong. Um, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. He chooses to make Pharaoh keep the Jews there. 
And so he can execute another plague. And, and I got explanations for this from, from my um, Hebrew teachers, and I didn't find them incredibly convincing, which is only to say that I think there is an interesting modern desire to call all the religions religions of peace. Um, but they have a lot of violence in them. I mean, my God, the Old Testament is a very violent book. There's this one about – there's this whole story about um, – a rape of of one of the uh, of of one of the the members of the Hebrew tribe, and then there's a decision to marry the woman to to the person if all of the person's community gets circumcised, and on the third day of the circumcision, when this whole community is recovering, like the Jews sweep in and kill them. There's a lot of violence, and I just deeply, deeply, deeply admire the people who live lives of peace and of service generated out of religious faith. But I wonder sometimes what separates them from the people who don't. And I think we want to say that they're the true religious ones and the others aren't. Um, but I also wonder if they're not people who are motivated in some deep psychological way or for reasons I don't fully understand to, to be peaceful in much the same way that there are effective altruists who are atheists, who live an incredible um, life of, of, of service and, and giving to others despite not having re religious backing at all. I, I don't know exactly how to how – to, collate any of this, but but it does seem to me that there is a desire to paint religion as one thing when just like everything, it's so many. Yeah, it is many things, but this is why I'm not a fundamentalist, because <laughs> I would have to buy it all. Um, and so, you know, I think the people who, who live lives of selfless service, they do it because they want to honor God and serve their fellow. And they God is a pattern of love, which they want to serve. Love your God and love your neighbor. It's simple. Uh, and you know, but to, so you can read the Exodus as the hardening of the heart. I think there's a call for genocide right in the middle there of the Amalekites or whatever. Uh, but there's also the story of the Exodus, which you can read is God taking a very diverse people and transforming them into a single people. Uh, and so, you know, Rabbi Sachs mentions that in Genesis, the creation of the universe is covered in nine verses. In Exodus, the creation of the tabernacle is covered in hundreds of verses. And why is that? Because God was taking a disparate, enslaved people with a very bad consciousness and turning them into a community. And the way you turn a disparate people into a community is you give them a project to build together. And a community is people who are building something together. And But then there are failures, there's a worship of the golden calf. And that teaches us that when we make our departures in life, we do it when we're too immature and we're not quite ready. We do it in a hurried way. There's a beautiful book I highly recommend if anybody cares about Exodus by Aviva Zornberg called The Particulars of Rapture, which is just a beautiful description of how a people who are downtrodden and have a slave mentality are shifted into a people that have an independent mentality. And it's about internal transformation. And so I read Exodus first as the, as the true story of our people, as Jews and also as Americans, by the way, uh, a people coming out of oppression and crossing the wilderness and coming into a promised land, but also as a story of personal transformation. And so we have a rabbinic tradition so we can read things in the right way, not so we can embrace the, the parts that we really, as we say, find challenging. You tell the story in the book of your own personal transformation around faith. Do you, do you want to talk a bit about that? Because it's quite, I think it's a quite moving section. Yeah, it's the most personal and probably the most important to me. And it's unusual and I don't, it's not going to make people happy. So I grew up in a Jewish home. I, the Jewish story is my story. I was raised by immigrants. I was also um, raised in a lot of Christian contexts. Um, I went to church school, Grace Church School in New York, Lower Manhattan, and then I went to a, a camp in Connecticut called Incarnation. And so in my childhood, I saw two different kinds of goodness. 
the first kind is the Jewish kind, which is, is chesed, as I mentioned, loving kindness. And that's the kind of goodness you see around the dinner table, just a loving embrace. That's the kind of uh, goodness you see in Israel, frankly, when I've been there probably 30 times. And when you're there during Intifada, when there's violence, you see the whole country coming together as one across many divisions in that country. And so th that's a beauty. That's a, a beauty that one is drawn to. But I also saw... Um, Although not across all divisions in that country. Yeah. Well, I would say when, when I've been there and there's a bus bombing or something, the, you feel the whole country turning. I feel the ultra-Orthodox, the Tel Aviv left, they're all like... Well, I was thinking about the the the, the Arabs in Israel. Oh, right. Okay. That's I, fair. I mean, that there's yeah. a division there that right. has been quite difficult yeah, to bridge. Okay. Right. That's that's very true. Um, but then I there's a... Um, a Christian kind of goodness. I was around. There was a guy who was um, a camp counselor of mine, and then became a friend, who was just a person for others. He was bright and cheerful, uh, and he his, he interrupted his sentences with bright enthusiasm and pops and whistles. And he did hard things. He became an Episcopal priest. He worked in Honduras with violence. In Maryland, he worked with people with domestic violence. And so he saw the worst of life, but he was he lived a life of selfless service and joy and so self-surrender to grace. And so I've lived with those two moral worldviews. And it didn't really bother me through most of my life because I didn't believe in God, so it was just like two philosophies. And then as life went on, I would say the categories I had in my head became inadequate to reality as I experienced it. That reality was just much more spiritual and enchanted than um, anything I could described through material and non-religious categories. And so, for example, you know, we do journalism and I write about people and it, to me it doesn't make sense to write about people if they're just sacks full of genetic material. I write about people because they have souls and they have some piece of themselves that... Tell me about that for a minute. Why wouldn't it? Why, if it turns out that it's a purely reductive materialist world for sacks of genetic material, when we die, we're gone, why would that make it different to write about us? Well, it doesn't... It would feel meaningless, like the story has no meaning, that we're just like a bunch of genes on a blue dot in the middle of the vast universe, and it really doesn't matter. And to me, it doesn't. life doesn't feel that way. It feels like how we behave uh, does matter, that there's an ultimate standard in the universe that we try to live up to, and that we have something in us that has um, infinite dignity. And that thing in us doesn't have any size, shape, or weight. Uh, and we call it a soul, and rich people don't have more of it than poor people, and old people don't have more of it than young people, and that it yearns for goodness. Uh, and I've, I, you know, I've interviewed people who've done war crimes and genocide and criminals, and they all want to pretend their, their life is good. And if they did bad things, they have some rationalization to explain that. And so this yearning to lead a good and meaningful life comes from somewhere. And if you think that people have these immaterial things in them, um, and we all have that, then it's a short step, I think, to think that somehow all that is merged into one, uh, that we're all connected in some deep way, and that the world is was created and is being created still in, in a way that's sort of enchanted. And I have, you know, most people have moments in life where they feel reality slips outside its boundaries. They have a sense of some other otherness, some sense of transcendence. And that doesn't happen often. But I think religion is trying to stay faithful to those moments and not view them just as bizarre interruptions of life. But but as part of this, you made a process of exploring and embracing uh, a, a more grounded Christian faith as well. 
Yeah, well, I, I'm as a people, I'm Jewish, but I, I guess I had problems. You know, I, I just wanted to know what was true, right? And so I've always read a lot of Jewish theologians. Theologians really touch the deepest issues, even if you don't believe in God. I think it's really useful to read theology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I so, fully agree with that. And so, like Abraham Joshua Heschel, I've always been a fan of Reinhold Niebuhr. Martin Buber is a little hard to understand, but probably a deep guy, deeper than me, probably. Um, and C.S. Lewis um, and people like that. So I, I've read in that. And in the course of my reading and things that have really touched me, the Exodus story really touches me. I think that is the uh, the ground of being for our lives. That is the story that we have lived out for centuries and made it true. But I, I confess the other thing that really touches me is the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and um, just it's a radical, like how somebody in that time came up with this radical revolutionary concept that the least are the worst, the meek shall inherit the earth. And to me, that's as I quoted in the book, somebody saying the celestial grandeur shines through in that in that statement. Um, and so I, 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 so I feel Jewish, all my friends are Jewish, but I can't unread Matthew and I can't unread the Sermon on the Mount. And I feel that if there is a God, which I hope there is and think there is, that somehow his essence is somehow captured in what Jesus said there. And has your has the quality of belief for you changed? I mean, something we're talking about here is the I've, I would sort of describe a lot of what, what you've described here as sort of a moral grandeur and a worldview. But but in terms of your personal faith, um, has the quality of that changed and the role it plays in on a Wednesday changed? On a Wednesday, only on Thursday. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but you yeah, know, no, I mean, it like has in a kind of tangible day to day. Right. I mean, I, I, the way I describe it is my my journey of faith. Some people have these dramatic things where like God comes down and shining light. I never had anything like that. It's just like, but it, this gradual process, and I describe it like sitting on a train, and suddenly you're, all the people around you are reading. You're on the quiet car in the Acela, and you go get a coffee, and then you look out the window and you realize. You've moved a long way. Everything seemed normal, but you've traveled and you've crossed a boundary. And there was no border at the boundary, but somehow you're a believer. And belief is not, oh, God's telling me to order a cheeseburger. To me, it's not. Some people talk that way and I really don't resonate with it. To me is, and I quote in the book, Frederick Buechner, he said, you know, if you wake up every morning and you read the paper and you think, do I really want to believe all that again? And if, if 10 days out of 10, you think, yeah, I believe in God. He said, well, you're pulling the wool over your eyes or mine. You should maybe believe in it maybe two days out of 10. And because the saying no is important as saying yes, I don't believe it because it shows you're human. But when you those few days when you do believe, you should do it with great laughter and joy. And to think that we basically live in a gracious world with some loving force that's weirder than we can imagine, that feels right to me. You uh, talked about having a period in, when you were younger and you were a socialist. Did you have a period when you were a sort of dogmatic unbeliever? I was never dogmatic. I was one of those typical neocon types who thought religion was good for other people. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was like a socially positive force. Uh, but it was never something that was going to occupy me. <laughs> and then I think in college, I, I, I treated religious literature as sort of just any other kind of literature, wisdom literature. Like it could be useful. I could take some of this and be useful. Like when I first got my column – I'd never been hated on a mass scale before. And being a more conservative columnist at the Times, I got a lot of hatred. And I realized it was very debilitating and hard for the first six months. But then the phrase, love your enemies, uh, came came up. And I realized you have to treat these people who are really being mean to you on email 
as somebody you're going to love who are bringing you gifts of some form. Uh, and I found that was the only mentally survivable way. So that was just like taking – the Bible is filled with wi practical wisdom. Uh, so I, I treated it at that as that for most of my life. I was never hostile to religion, but mm -hmm. I was never – it was like un impersonal. Yeah, that, that – that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I've had, I had a period when I was younger where I was hostile to religion and, you know, read the books about Bible contradictions and, and I've, I've kind of had a lot of spaces I've occupied around faith, particularly when I was, um, when I was younger, there was like a period of time when I wanted to be, when I was quite religious and wanted to be a rabbi and a period of time when I was very interested in, I was one of the kids who would get into arguments disproving religion, right? Which, you know, and... And now I, I often find myself in a place where I find a lot of beauty in religion and I would like to find faith, but it doesn't feel possible to me. Um, it doesn't me – when I read these books, when I read the Exodus story, uh, my mind fastens on the parts that don't make sense or that contradict. I still do that. <laughs> and I, I can't quiet that. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think like a lot of people, I find a lot of beauty in Buddhism, which – has certainly in, in in the way it's articulated in, in many of its modern variants, but also in some of its more original ones, doesn't doesn't cause some of that dissonance for me. But I have a lot of trouble with as much as I sometimes wish I could, because I feel this very deep, you know, ritualistic pull towards Judaism. I don't find that I'm able to kind of cross that that gulf. I don't I don't find that I have to be hostile to it anymore. I, I find that I can have a much more balanced appreciation, but it's impersonal in the way you're talking about it. It's in, it's in the way I kind of admire utilitarianism or something. Yeah, I, yeah that's I, I still read that way. It's like, wait, who did, where did Cain and Abel get wives? Where did they come from? Like, it's like, <laughs> and there are all these passages which are contradictory or just plain out ugly. Yeah. And so I still read that way. And frankly, when I try to pray, I'm like a literary critic of my own prayers. It's like, oh, this one is sort of rambling or this isn't coherent. But there are moments, and I guess I felt there are moments when I've I felt grace before I felt God, which is to say, just there were some moments where I felt like I was, the world was a loving world that was giving me a lot more love than I deserved. And there was an essential kindness at the bottom of the world. And then, you know, sometimes I, you felt observed. Um, I was running, I was in New Haven, I was teaching, this was like seven or eight years ago, and I was running on a little trail there, and I came across a dead body. A guy had, I don't know, overdosed, I guess, by the trail. And um, I wanted to just keep running so I could make it to my class and not call a cop or something. And I had this powerful sense that somebody was watching me and calling me to account. So I went out and found a cop. Um, but those are just weird, powerful moments of being observed. But And then also, I think parenthood was central to this, hmm. that I just felt I've give, been given so much that I ever deserved. Uh, and that there's an element of just loving kindness uh, at the deep, at the bottom of each of us and sort of in the underlying way of uh, nature. The books I recommend on how faith feels to me, there's a book by a guy named Christian Wyman who's a poet that teaches at Yale who called My Bright Abyss. And it's a book about, he is a very, to me, a very credible version of faith. That faith is is just something that changes all the time and you doubt it most of the time. And as he said, if faith is supposed to make my life better, it's not working for me because his life is still filled with illness and sadness and depression sometimes. Uh, and it's so it's it's uh, his I highly recommend that book as a description of what faith actually feels like, too. And most people, whether Orthodox Jews or Christians, they seem to have it every day. <laughs> like, I don't get that. Yeah. Like, I, but I but that to me is a thing that that I worry about a lot, actually. I mean, as a one of the ways in which I do my reporting, and this is 
you know, I think sometimes a strength and very often a weakness is that I rely a lot on my ability to sort of empathetically inhabit somebody else's mind, right? Somebody else's experience. And I think that intellectually, I'm pretty good at doing that. I can I can inhabit someone's argument really well. I can understand how it looks to them. I really worry when I can't inhabit their experience, um, when there's a part of their experience that I know is inaccessible to me. Um, and that kind of easy faith is one of those. It is an experience that a lot of people have, a lot of people, right? That, you know, you win, you win a basketball game and you say, thank God, right? right? Like God, God was right. great. God helped me out here. And then I was like, yeah, but what about when you lose? Right, right. But they don't think about it that way. And um, I mean, some do obviously, but, 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 but many don't. And, you know, I think about this in a more prosaic way around sports, which I just cannot for the life of me get into, even though it is such a foundational and fundamental experience for, for so many people I love and just so many, so many people around the world, right? Having very deep commitments to sports teams is a whole lot more uh, common than, you know, sort of a lot of my idiosyncratic interests. And that, that inability to experientially inhabit what are very common experiences always makes me feel that I'm going to get things profoundly wrong. Because the world is not just a good argument, right? The world is also how it feels. And, and, and so I actually want to look up that book, The Bright Abyss, but I also have this feeling that it won't help me understand the part of it that I can't access. It'll help me understand the part of it that somebody like me could. And what is different about me that I can't, right? Like that, that's always a question for me there, right? What is, what is it that is separating people out there? What, what, is it something in childhood? Is it something, you know, in, in, in big five personality traits in, in the culture that you end up growing up in? Um, it's a, it's a, it's a big separation. And I think that it's, it's one that um, we often under, uh, underrate in terms of, are we being able to see the way uh, others experience the world and thus being able to understand their behavior and actions and morality, you know, to, to the degree we think? Yeah. Then I have a friend who said um, every sports story should begin with this phrase, not that it matters, but. But it does matter. <laughs> it does, right. It does matter. To, and unless my life was foundationally formed by the New York Mets and a miracle victory they had when I was a little kid. Um, and but and I get swept up in the sports it's sort of – but you're, what are you actually worshiping? Like I'm a Mets fan. If the Mets traded all 25 yeah. of their players to the Yankees uh, and suddenly the, all 25 players were different but they were wearing the same piece of cloth, I would still worship the Mets. Like what am I worshiping? A this piece is how of I look at sports. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. this is, it, it is, I read it the same way I read religion where I'm like, they don't care about you. Right? Like, <laughs> right, look at the contradictions right. here. They're going like th this. These people, like they, they, like they forced your city to give them tax breaks to build that stadium. <laughs> right. And but one thing with sports that I, I do appreciate is that uh, we were talking about the power of a team um, earlier, yeah, the power right. of groups. And to me, one thing about sports is, and and it's and how prevalent it is in basically every culture we know of all across the world, um, where much else is not prevalent everywhere is that it shows how powerful the team instinct is that you can detach it from anything that is grounded, right? Anything that has stakes to your point about whether or not it matters. You can detach it from all of that. You can fill it with people who you know are not there for you. They're not, it's not like they grew up in your town, right? It, it may be, the, the team may have your name in front of it, but those people do not, they're not of your town. They leave, they didn't grow up there, they don't care. Um, and yet it is, people will organize their entire lives around it. And, and I do think you have to sit back and look at that and appreciate how powerful that drive is in us. Right. Um, to me, like sports is this great lesson about politics too um, because I think most people who really are into politics are into it more the way they're into sports than they like to admit. Yeah, that could be. I mean if, if you go back into our 
culture. I mean, if you were an alien landing in space and you land in the Middle Ages, you'd see cathedrals and think these people are really religious. Now you'd see these lavish sports stadiums and you'd think <laughs> these people are really into sports. And I, it has become our, our global religion, Manchester United, the New York Yankees, you know, New England Patriots. It's partly playing on the surge of dopamine we get when uh, our team wins. I, one opening day baseball season, I saw a tweet, I forget who wrote it, saying, welcome to baseball season. Now, every day, my mood will be affected by men I don't know. Yes. <laughs> like, and so, and that's true with me, whether the Mets are winning or losing. Um, but hopefully it's, yeah, it, it is a sense of something I'm attached to, some larger entity. Um, and it is, sports is also, frankly, a bit of a moral drama. Uh, the people who practice, who, who um, rise, you know, they succeed over after failure. You know, there's all these melodramas going on in sports. It's physically beautiful. Um, it appeals to a lot of our senses, just not our minds. So sports talk, one of the things when I look at sports pundits being a political pundit, I think they're way better than we are. <laughs> the standards are, are much higher for for being a sports pundit. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I'm going to make a hard turn in the conversation because there are a couple things you bring up in the book that I want to make sure we cover. Um, one of them that I was thinking about, you bring up Kierkegaard's concept of the aesthetic life. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah. We would now call it the Instagram life. Sure. And I think it afflicts a lot of us that he meant that we judge our life on aesthetic grounds. Was it interesting or dull? Was it pretty or ugly? And that the people who are leading an aesthetic life um, treat life as a series of experiences. They want to go to Burning Man one day. They want to go to the, the Grand Valley. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> but the, but if if your life is just a series of experiences that don't accumulate to something, and if you just treat it as this aesthetic experience, then eventually you're not adding up to anything. And you're not serving anything. It's just an aesthetic experience. It's just something that passes through you. And he says eventually you get sick of it, um, and the, the pleasures cease to thrill. Uh, and then you wind up with a Middle East, medieval concept called acedia, 
which is the loss of desire. And that's a word we don't have, but people begin their life filled with these fervent desires, but suddenly the, the pilot light goes out and they lose desire. And so he says, you're going to wind up in a crisis if you try to build an aesthetic life. And I, this comes in this section, you're, you're also talking about careers, and I was thinking a lot about it in terms of career decisions people make, that it seems to me, um, and again, this is for people who have the, the, the privilege to make decisions this way, but it does seem to me that oftentimes people organize a lot of career questions as if they are trying to read their own story from the outside, yeah. right? Like, hmm. how would this look? How right. would this look in the obituary? Yeah. How would this look if somebody else were telling my parents about my career? And it's very seductive. I think I did a certain amount of that for some time. And it's really interesting to try to think about the difference between like the aesthetic career, the aesthetic life, and um, I don't know what the alternative uh, terminology would exactly be. But I mean, I remember finding this out about myself um, at, a, at a certain point because I had a lot of great fortune to do a lot of really interesting things through my career. Um, I got to go to all kinds of fascinating conferences and meet fascinating people. And I remember just feeling this constant state of anger at myself that I wasn't enjoying it more, hmm. that I was just tired. Um, and I would do these things because of course I should. And then I'd be there just wanting to get home. And at a certain point I learned that I just needed to be home a lot more. Um, and that's been a struggle. Like I just prefer being at home reading a book than to do a, a lot of the things that seem like they would be uh, a more um, exciting life. And that's okay. <laughs> and I think that's a hard thing to convince yourself of, right. particularly in a, an age of Instagram and, you know, curating your, uh, your identity publicly for other people. Yeah. One of the lies of the meritocracy is you can build your own prestige by attaching yourself to prestigious brands. So I work at the New York Times or teach at Yale. These are prestigious brands. But it, it sort of doesn't actually lead to all that much. And you know, well, money, fame. Money, fame. It does. I mean, that's a lot of external things. I, one of the things that's been liberating to me is I talk about these weavers, these community builders that I'm around a lot of the time. It's just more fun to be around them. They are, um, you know, they're living in neighborhoods that are not great. They're, they don't want fame, money. All the things social scientists tell us we want, they don't want those things. Uh, they really are motivated by a desire to live in right relationship with others and to serve a good. And they're weirdly joyous as a result of that. They... They're outside the meritocracy in which a lot of us are raised. Uh, and they take on a lot of burdens. You know, they, they might have uh, friends who have sort of semi-adopted 40 teenagers. And, you know, if you have one kid, that's tough. <laughs> Imagine having 40. Uh, and yet they radiate a joy. You know, joy comes from taking on heavy burdens. And they, they are just living outside the meritocratic system that tortures a lot of us. I mean, we've not really touched on yet the central metaphor of the book, the, these two mountains, but, but this is probably a good place to do. So do you want to just talk a, a bit about what the, the two mountains are? Yeah, so that we get out of school and we think we're going to climb a certain mountain, which is more or less our career mountain. Uh, we're going to be a cop, a teacher, a journalist, firefighter. And usually what happens, and you adopt a certain value system doing that, which is a value system sort of based on the egotistical desires. Uh, and you spend a lot of time on the first mountain thinking about reputation and reputation management. And then you achieve success and you find it weirdly unfulfilling, which happened to me, or you fail and you're off your mountain, uh, or something happens that wasn't part of the original plan. You get a cancer scare, you lose a child. And so you're down in the valley. And in the valley, the desires of the first mountain just seem small and unimportant. And you get broken open and you realize you have deeper desires, the desires of the heart and soul. And you think, oh, there's a bigger life ahead of me. There's a second mountain. And sometimes you change your life. I ran into a guy who uh, was a banker for 25 years. 
wasn't satisfied. So he now he serves uh, helping guys come out of prison. And when he talks about that, his, his eyes glow. A lot of people stay in their same jobs, uh, but they live for a relationship from, from f- to be a mentor, to serve uh, the people around them. Uh, and so they really put other in front of self. And it's easy to say, I live for relationship. Uh, it's, it's a banality. But to actually do it is actually hard. <laughs> to, and, and to see deeply into others, to care more about others than, than yourself, to quiet the voice of the ego. It, and just to be skillful at relationship is phenomenally hard, how to, how to have really honest conversations that aren't intellectual and up in your head. Um, and so, but they are like that, Second Mountain people. I, I've come to recognize them. I can spot them. They, they really are not thinking about themselves. The, the people you describe who are like this in the book, they're, they're reasonably extreme people, yeah. um, people who have adopted 40 folks or who got shot and right. you know, moved into anti-gang yeah. work. And I think it is much easier to conceptualize what like the normal first mountain climber looks like because right. we all know them. And what does the normal second mountain climber yeah. look like? Not I that would, people are doing something that would win you an award, right. but just people who are, you know, have, have changed the focus of their life. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you go to any school, teachers or second mountain people by and large, they take, I, I make this dis- distinction between happiness and joy. Happiness is when you win some victory, you get promoted. So happiness is self-expanding. Joy is self-transcending where you and another person become merged, or you and nature become merged, or you and God become merged. And when teachers take joy in the accomplishments of their students, that's a second mountain. And I tell this story in the book, which is an illustration how you can be a very normal person, be a second mountain mentality in the value system. I'm really just using these mountains as metaphors for two different value systems. Uh, One which is prevalent in our culture based on self, and the other not prevalent in our culture based on relationship. And so the story is I got from a book called uh, Practical Wisdom. And it's about a hospital janitor named Luke. And Luke is cleaning rooms in the hospital. And one of the rooms he's cleaning is a kid is in there, a teenager, got into a fight and fell into a coma, which he was not coming out of. And sitting in the room for six months is his dad, just sitting vigil. And one day, his, when Luke cleans the kid's room, the dad is out getting a smoke. And later in the afternoon, the dad goes to Luke and says, you didn't clean my son's room. And so the first men- mountain mentality says, my job is cleaning rooms. And so in, if you, that's your mentality, you say, no, I did clean your son's room. You were just out getting a smoke. The second mountain mentality is, my job is to comfort patients and their families. In that case, your decision is, well, I'll go clean the ga- room again so the dad can have the comfort of seeing me clean it. And that's what Luke did. And so it's a different logic. It's like seeing my life here is not about finishing an article. My life here is about building relationship. Uh, and so putting that changes your behavior in all sorts of subtle ways, even if you stay on the job. I think it'd be easy to listen to this and say that what you're saying is first mountain is career and second mountain is charity. Yeah, second I don't really mountain. believe that. Yeah. So you have this line that charity is the ultimate dirty word. Can you talk about the distinction between what you're discussing and the idea of charity? Yeah. Well, charity is is condescending in the first place. And so the people I've met, these weavers, they hate that word. They believe in radical mutuality, that we're all broken, and we all are in this together. As one woman told me, I don't do things for people. I just do things with people. And so when you're on your second mountain, you're, real, you're aware of your own brokenness and how much you need others. And you are aware of the depths of yourself that only spiritual and relational food can fill. And you're living out of those depths. Uh, and so you, often you're quite lonely because you, you are really in touch with the, the deepest desires of yourself. And so you really go out of your way to be sit with people and be patient with them. Uh, and you don't see the more accomplished as more valuable. 
uh, you've got a very different value system. And one of the things that just I'll say, I think, you know, we've spent a lot of time over the last 10 years thinking about our decision-making skills, uh, Danny Kahneman and all that. In my view, the next frontier in understanding ourselves is understanding where our desires come from and how we can replace bad desires with better desires. Like first, where they come from is a bit of a mystery. Um, like I can order broccoli at the restaurant, but I can't teach myself to like broccoli. It comes out of some mysterious place in yourself. And second, what you want, you become what you want. And so wanting the right things is really important. And if you want prestige and reputation, you'll become like that. But if you just want to live in right relationship and feel merged with others, then you'll become that sort of person. And so moving from low desires to higher desires is really what the first and second mountain is about. When you, I take your point that this is something that needs study, but did you see ways that people did this? Well, I, I think the, the- I mean, beyond the kind of trauma ways that, that you've discussed about. Yeah, already. I think some people are loved into it. Mm -hmm. And some people, like a lot of people I meet, they did their second mountain first. They were laved, loved in sub, such a deep way that love sort of overflowed over self-interest. And there are a lot of people who grow up um, just, um, well, Mother Teresa is actually a good example. So she grew up just wanting to serve others. Uh, Dorothy Day is another hero of mine. But Mother Teresa is an example because something about her just, and I meet teenagers like this. They just, um, they love working in the soup kitchen. Uh, and they, somehow it's not, they're not thinking, oh, what a hero I am. They're just enjoying that process. Uh, and Mother Teresa is a good example because she went in this, she found God, and she served the poor, and then she lost her faith in God. And that went on for decades where she had no contact with God. And it was deeply depressing, but she continued the work. And then she said, you're serving the, the people who have nothing. And your loss of faith in God is part of that pain. And so you're sharing their suffering. And she found this enormously comforting. And it's she's operating by a different logic than a lot of us are operating by. For the most part, um, the, the stories you tell in the book are people who are very rooted in a place, in a community. They are helping people near to them. And I'm part of the problem in what I'm about to describe. But as media becomes more nationalized, as we're all on sort of nationally viral social media, I think there's a real tendency to put that energy you have, that energy to change the world into a world so big that it's very, very hard to have any effect on it, right? And, you know, and I don't even mean to do this in a sense of mocking, you know, Twitter activism. I, I think that comes often from a very real place, but that I, I do think that there is a bait and switch between what grabs us most because the stakes are so high and then what can actually feed us because we can feel that kind of relational sense of giving something and getting something and giving back and being given back to. And, you know, I wondered how much some of the spiritual void or the hollowness you talk about in the book just comes from this increasing uh, detachment from place. Uh, more of us move away from where we grew up and, you know, the, we don't read local news. I mean, there's just like less of a community here. Um, and it does seem to me that uh, that for a lot of us, we'd be better off trying to really focus on making our community better and worrying a little bit less about the kind of like global picture. Yeah, I've come to see that. And I think it's a problem of our social class in particular. When I travel around the country interviewing these weavers, one of the questions I ask them is, to what level of society are you most attached? Is it your town? Is it your county, your state, your region, your country, or the world? And 5% will say the world, all of humanity I'm attached to. 
But 80% will say, my town. Youngstown, Ohio is my place. New Orleans, Shreveport, Louisiana is my place. They care most about their place. And that's, if you go to the New York and, tel- and DC and San Francisco, people don't really think that way, uh, not as often. But most people, they live and die for this place. Uh, and I've really come to believe, and this is sort of gross out of Ross Shetty's work too, that the neighborhood is the unit of social change, that the individual is not the unit of change. Like pick out one and then uh, get them into Harvard and they'll be better. But as a friend of mine in Shreveport says, you can't clean only your part of the swimming pool. You have to clean the whole community and norms will shift and, and behavior will shift and relationship will be created and everybody in the community will be lifted up. And Raj Shetty's work is about how important your local neighborhood is to your social mobility and that you can get two neighborhoods, Compton or South Central in LA with very similar demographics. And in one place, people really rise up. Another place, they go to jail. And so there's dynamics in each neighborhood. And just being around, like I was around a guy in Youngstown, he just said, I live and die for Youngstown. And he started his activism by just holding up a sign that's in the town square called, and it said, defend Youngstown. And now he works with some of the sort of real estate and housing, try to build back Youngstown back up. Uh, and most people I've been humbled by are really, really, really rooted in place. And geography is something we maybe have undervalued. I think it's a good place to to take this to a close. So let me ask you the, the question we always ask at the end, which is what are three books you've read that have influenced, you know, this journey or just you in general that you'd recommend to the audience? Um, the first one would be um, uh, Edmund Burke's The Reflections on the Revolution in France, which I was uh, forced to read in college and hated because I was socialist and he's a guy saying, be cautious. But that phrase I used earlier, epistemological modesty, that's really become the core of my life and the respect for tradition, respect for the way things are done. Um, my second book, I guess it's banal, but Anna Karenina uh, by Tolstoy. Um, it's just a book of um, deep emotionality and of, of moral searching. Everybody is morally searching in that book. And you get the full range of, of human nature. Um, I'm trying to think what my third would be. Um, I guess I'll say, um, I'm now blanking on the author's name, Edmund Morris, his early biography of Theodore Roosevelt. Um, I... If my political philosophy has any roots, it's to um, what Whiggism. And so Whiggism has its intellectual ancestors in Alexander Hamilton. And then it created in the early 19th century. And it was based on the idea that liberals are for using government to enhance equality. And libertarians are for reducing government to enhance freedom. But there's a third movement in our society that's based on limited but energetic government to enhance social mobility. And Hamilton was a poor immigrant kid. He wanted to create a government that would enhance social mobility. And the Whigs tried to do that, Daniel Webster, Henry Clay, by building canals, railroads, state banks. Abraham Lincoln grew up in that tradition. Uh, and he talked, he gave more speeches about banking than about slavery in the course of his life. And uh, just wanted to increase a capitalist economy that would be inclusive. And then Teddy Roosevelt finished that off. And unfortunately, in the 20th century, it went away. And so there are now six wigs in the country, and I'm one of them. And I, I long for a return to that tendency. David Brooks, thank you very much. Thank you, Ezra. Pleasure. Thank you to David Brooks for being here. One thing I wanted to say, thinking a little bit about this conversation, is there's been something on the side of the podcast for a couple episodes now, maybe a bit longer than that. But it's about this idea that you have to understand capitalism is not just a way we manage and structure our economy, but it's something that's begun to structure our moral uh, philosophy, how we view each other and value each other. 
And I think this is something that we don't talk about well, something that I have not always spoken about well. But it feels to me like it is beneath a lot of our debates right now. I, I find in even a lot of political debates that people don't care that much about the market mechanism or not. They're they're more open-minded, even when they will call themselves a democratic socialist about that than, than, than they're sometimes given credit for. What people care about is whether or not you are entrenching this one logic by which we run our society or you are unmaking it. And I think that a lot of our political fights uh, make a bit more sense from that perspective. And I think that there is a lot of value in that perspective. We have a philosophy um, that is unchallenged and unchallenged in part because it does not present itself as what it is. Unchallenged in part because it presents itself as an economy. And then we're quietly running our lives according to these dictates that we're not even always sure where they come from. And they're definitely not open to analysis because they don't present themselves as what they are. They don't present they don't present themselves as who we are and how we think about each other. I mean, it's just it's just how you how you make money. It's just <laughs> how you make an economy efficient. And, and I do think that is that's a real problem. The other thing I just want to call out that that I that I thought was valuable here is this idea that we have this tendency to talk about ideas as right or wrong, right? You know, your political philosophy, if you have it, it's got to be either immune to all circumstance, like the answer forever, or it's not the answer, right? If I can if I can poke a hole in it, if I can say that that failed at some other time in some other context, then clearly it can't be right for now. And I think there's a lot of freedom, certainly a lot of intellectual freedom in recognizing that there's no answer that is the answer, no answer that will be right forever. There are only answers that might be better for right now. And then, you know, maybe after being better for a while, they'll become worse and other people have to come up with a new idea to move it back in, in another direction. But there's an incredible arrogance in believing that what we're called to do or what we're asked to do is to come up with an answer forever. Um, and I think that a lot of our conversation would be healthier if we talked about things in terms of uh, moving moving in another direction for a while, pulling the pendulum back for a bit. And, you know, in 20, 30, 50 years, we'll reevaluate or other people, more to the point, will reevaluate. But there, there, there is some relief in recognizing that not only don't you need to, but you can't come up with answers like that. Um, and that means that a lot more possible answers are appropriate for right now because you don't have to go all the way with them. You can just go some of the way with them. You can just use them to pull us back a bit from the way we've already gone. Um, so thank you to David Brooks. Thank you to you for being here. Uh, to Jeffrey Geld, my producer, uh, for making the show happen. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. Music.